Hey up and welcome to the temple of bleh. Shit's been quiet recently. I've been on a bit of a break. Obviously, I was shooting in New York. Um, came back and decided, you know what's good? A fucking bit of sleep. So I had a bit of sleep. Um, now I'm kind of doing some reconciliation work for the documentary. Uh, mostly admin and things like that. Making sure some people are, I'm forgotten I, I exist. All that shit. Anyway. This is a conversation with Steve Ricardo, who you might remember from some of the earlier episodes of the podcast relating to the Roadrunner shit. So I was in New York shooting, as I mentioned, and obviously Steve was there. We wanted to record this there, like on a dictaphone, with like the sounds of Brooklyn in the background, because that would have been totally fucking badass. But uh, fate intervened, and I ended up navigating the New York subway at 7 in the fucking morning with the rest of the commuters uh, to deal with some camera issues. But, you know, that's that's how it happens. Uh, here we're dealing with uh, Steve's... Um, not Roadrunner career. We're doing everything else. So his long history in music is being explored in this uh, in this conversation. All ah, right. So what we, what you want to do is you want to look under this uh, podcast, wherever you're seeing it, and click the link. That'll take you to uh, Blown Smoke or Twisted Rico. Right. So that's Steve's podcast. We're both airing this episode with different intros on both podcasts. But here's the thing: Steve's podcast, Blown Smoke or Twisted Rico, is a real podcast. It like is actually it actually is a proper podcast, not this piece of shit. So do that. Just listen to it on his because the numbers mean the numbers mean something there. Whereas I don't even know how many people listen to this. This just fucking goes up and I just it's fire and forget. So click the link below and listen to this on Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico. Uh, Steve's got a more sort of compelling uh, dulcet tonality to his voice anyway. So you know one two fuck shit up. Because, like, our entire friendship has been built around, like, these eight months you spent a Roadrunner, I've actually done zero fucking prep because I thought, because it's, a, it's an inverse interview. Instead of researching, like, in, instead of researching certain bits, I'm now just saying, ask anything which isn't Roadrunner. And I kind of figured, when I listen to your podcast, <clears throat> I, I don't get the impression that you're going into your career a lot. You Obviously, you have a lot of relationships which you've formed and you've, you've, you've um, extrapolated on those friendships and those connections and brought people to the podcast. But I don't think I, you've done one where you're going, this is me, Stephen, this is my career. So maybe this would be quite an interesting... If, if, sure. If, for, for your subscribers to go, well, what the fuck Steve done? Like, well, what's... Because it's quite an extensive career that you've got, right? I think and it's I don't a know great idea. All. Everyone <laughs> I told about this thinks it's a good idea. So I'm, I'm down. So whenever you want to start... Here I am. So how do you, I know you started out at Green World, right? Yeah, well, Green World actually and Enigma were the same company oh, when I okay. started there. It was the green, it was Green World and, and Enigma fell, fell under the Green World umbrella. Mm -hmm. The guys that started Green World, Bill and Wes Hine, started it with Steve Boudreau, who was the guy that ended up running Green World. It wasn't until I was there for about a year and a half that they split. And it right, became right. the Enigma Entertainment Corporation and Green World Distribution went in their own direction. But when I did go out to California in January, uh, I started there January 4th, 1984. And my job was to sell records over the phone. And I was pretty young at the time. So, and I just finished, got out of college and I bought a one-way ticket to LA from Boston. Right. And this guy, Paul Murata, 
hired me. He used to play in all these Cleveland punk bands like the Styrenes, Electric Eels, Mirrors. He wrote songs for Para Ubu. It was like a 70s art punk scene that mm -hmm. he was part of. And he hired me, and this is what he said. He goes, I have a bunch of Californians in here. I need some East Coast blood. He'd come out from New York, from Cle Cleveland to New York to LA. And that's why he said he gave me the job. <laughs> and they gave me the worst <laughs> pile of accounts that you could have, but I... I was really good on the phone, man. I was able to like start selling records and I worked my way up fast in the company. Yeah. So that was my first thing I did was sell records over the phone. 84. Yes. Fuck, man. But it's funny how this is the same guy that would also say, you need to go back to the East Coast and work with Case. <laughs> it is <laughs> the same guy. Well, you have a very good memory because he is the same guy that said <laughs> that. You have an excellent memory. <laughs> Paul Murata twice advised, told me to come welcome me, and then he said, "Go back." <laughs> That's very good. I like that. <laughs> so, how do you, you move from from uh, distribution into presumably A and R? And in an well, what happened was Paul. <laughs> This is funny because <laughs> Paul moved to the East Coast to open up Green World, New York. And guess who one of the first people that he hired was? Holly Lane. So basically, that's how I got, that's how Holly Lane and I ended up knowing each other because of Paul Murata. So when Paul left, I'd only been there 10 months and they moved me to the sales manager job. So I knew I was doing a good job and I picked up all the huge accounts and everything. And I ended up like doing really well. But then the guys that on the, on the label side started thinking, why don't we get this guy over here to come and sell to our distributors? Cause it was still an independently distributed label in America at the time, Enigma. Yeah. And they had just gotten Striper. So they saw <laughs> they saw that I could figure out some ways to sell Striper, Christian bookstores and things like that. And they stole me from the sales department. And that's when the two companies split. I feel All like right. I was right in the middle of the split. <laughs> and so I'm, my while I'm in the my, background here, and I'm also lo looking up things as you're saying them, right? So I'm looking at Enigma and looking at everyone that's on Enigma. So if you see things flashing on the screen, that's what I'm doing. That's cool. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. Um, well, the, the job they gave me was you're in charge of all the distributors selling our records wholesale to Gem, Important, Caroline, Dutch East India, you know, all Rough Trade, all mm -hmm. of those companies. So that was my job. And they said, you're also in charge of retail because we don't have a retail presence. So you're in charge of all the chains. That's how it started. And mm -hmm. then I said, well, you know, the real reason I came here is I want to be an A&R guy. I want to sign right. bands. They said, okay, if you want to sign bands, bring the bands in and we'll consider them. And we had meetings every week. And we could, they would consider the bands I brought in. So I ended up having a lot on my plate when I went over there. But I was really young, aggressive, and extremely enthusiastic. And I moved, I bought a one-way ticket to L.A. just to be in this position. So that's how th that went. So who did you bring into Enigma then? Which bands did you bring in? Well, um, 
the biggest band that I brought in, it took me a long time to get them signed was Poison because I fought long and hard to get Poison signed because no one else wanted to sign Poison. And that just doesn't go for us. That goes for every other label. But (laughs) when I went and saw them, I felt like this band could become big. I just had a feeling because the first show I went to was at the Troubadour. These two girls that worked on the Green World side, Debbie and Jennifer, Debbie Rogers, who ended up working with Iron Maiden for like 15 years or something, they were telling me I should check this band out. So I went to the Troubadour, and I first thing I noticed is the line out of the 200 people, there were like 190 girls. And I'm like, okay, this is like the Beatles, man. This this is good. So we get in there, I'm watching, and then... Just it was it was like a lot of excitement. I'm not into the glam metal thing at all at this point in my life. I'm like a punk kid kind of from Boston, you know, into like alternative and punk and that stuff, you know, like I was more into like, you know, Black Flag and the replacements and and bands like that, that I was in the neighborhoods and bands like that, that I was into like glam, you know, I didn't care about Motley Crue and Rat but they were there and I was there. So it took a long time, but finally I got everyone to agree, mostly the Heim brothers, and we got the band signed. And because of their success, and then this guy, Scott Vanderbilt, that I worked with wanted to sign the Smithereens. And I I went to Boston and they were playing there and they, the Heinz said, go check them out. So when I came back and we got in a meeting, they looked me straight in the eye and they said, do you think that band can sell 10,000 records? Just tell us right now. Because if you say no, we're not signing them. So I looked over and Scott had that like sad kind of look on his face, like, please say yes. And I'm like, yes. They ended up having a fucking gold record, of course. So then we had Striper, Poison, and Smithereens, and that's when Capital came along. And so when Capital came along, those guys preferred me to stick with the independent stuff and we started that's when i started restless records under enigma and i signed yeah i signed the outlets neighborhoods straw dogs ronnie montrose but ronnie montrose we put through enigma because ronnie was a lot bigger obviously than those bands and then there were other bands that i signed that were smaller like personal effects dc Lacroix, you know I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but it was mostly, you know, I didn't sign a lot of bands there, but probably like eight bands. I signed more in years after that, but at Enigma, sure. that was the whole deal as far as A&R go. I always, we always had a say in everything, you know, like we would bring labels in and, you know, we, they would ask for my opinion, like Fever Records at the Effigies, the Dead Milkman. What do you think about this? And I'm like, Dead Milkman, they're kind of weird, but yeah. And they had Bitchin' Camaro, which became a number one college radio. So I kind of had a lot to do with everything. That's how Enigma was. When I got there, there were eight of us. When I left, there were like 50, you know? I mean, we grew really quickly. Yeah. You didn't have anything to do with Gigi Allen, did you? No. (laughs) But I know Gigi Allen. Well, I knew Gigi Allen. But no, I did not have anything to do with Gigi Allen. <laughs> the first time we spoke about, I asked about Thor, didn't I? Yeah, Thor was on Enigma. That was before I got there, though. I didn't really have much to do with. There were other bands that ended up getting signed that I 
start i got conversations started that happens at every label though you know you leave and then someone else signs the band you wanted to sign you know yeah yeah exactly <laughs> i have more gang green at roadrunner you know yeah it's it's, it's a it's a dark art really isn't yeah. it interesting so when okay so so from from this sort of point you also get the call to go to roadrunner you, you leave roadrunner because we're not going to dwell on it because we've done it for two years um, <laughs> it was still, it was still like you know the best, most miserable eight months of my life. How's that for a quote? <laughs> well, okay, I think we I'll, got I'll that, didn't you, we? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what happened. So when I knew that I was getting fired, I I started talking to two two companies, Important, which had Combat and Relativity, sure. and right, uh, yeah. and Giant and and an unknown label which was going to go through dutch east india barry copran and howie gabriel and alan becker i knew those guys really well so they i had several meetings with them and they kept me just dragging along but barry tannenbaum over at dutch east india was like you can come in here you can start your own label you'll have your own office everything and I get sick of waiting for for important and I just said you know what I'm going to take this other job and then Barry did eventually call me goes well I wanted you for an A&R job but I wish I could do his accent but I can't I wanted you to do A&R but we decided that you know you were better at other things but you're gone now anyway so you know so I never ended up working there so I worked it so when I went to China it was great because Barry told me I could sign wherever I wanted, and he actually gave me the money to sign the bands that I wanted. Mm-hmm. So I, I built a really good roster there. With uh, government issue was kind of already in the building because they were getting distributed, but right. he still said, "Do you want a, them on the label?" I said, "Yes." So I after that I I got INC which was Indestructible Noise Command. They were a metal band, which Holly Lane actually turned me on to when I was yeah. at Roadrunner. But I guess she tried to get Case Wessels to do something. He wouldn't. But yeah. I I did. I signed him. <laughs> and then Dag Nasty, Verbal Assault, Government Issue, as I mentioned, Uniform Choice, Marginal Man. These were all like punk bands. So I had one metal band and all punk bands. Also Steel Vengeance, from Michigan, they were a metal band. And we had a weird deal with Pentagram where they weren't really on the label, but we we marketed the Day of Reckoning album for Pentagram. So I got to, to know Bobby Liebling early, early on before Pentagram became really a big band, you know, because I talked to him on the phone a lot. Was Government Issue Hawker as well at some point? <clears throat> I don't think so, no. I don't know if any of the... We also put a Seven Seconds record out, but it was a live album. And we did Salvation Soundtrack. That was a deal we had with D. Crepuscule. They were a Belgium label. Barry brought that one to me. And it was uh, Anna Domino, The Hood, and this soundtrack that had New Order and Cabaret Voltaire on it. And so that record sold like 35,000 copies. That was a big one. But the Dag Nasty and the Government Issue, I mean, Dag Nasty and Uniform Choice both sold over 30,000. And that's a lot for Independent in 1988, you know, when Mm -hmm. that was around that time. We we did really well. But what ended up happening to me, you know, I'm going to answer your question before you ask it. I got sick of living. I was living in New York City for the first year, and then I moved out to Long Island, and I couldn't stand it out there. And right. Brian Slagle, I don't know why, out of the blue, 
he just wrote me and said, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? And I said, I'm going to be in L.A. in a couple of weeks. You want to get together? And I was flying out to L.A. And I met with him and I went over to the label and he gave me a tour. And I was really, really impressed with Metal Blade. Right. I was like, wow, this place is really cool, you know. And plus all the guys I that worked there, I knew all about them, like Mike, Mike Faley. Yeah. He managed Billy Sheehan and William Howell. He was a well-known L.A., you know, Seenster dude mm -hmm. and you know so so he, we walked around the office and then he took me into this empty office and closed the door behind it he goes you come and work here this is your office and I'm like wow this is cool it was in Sherman Oaks in the valley and I'm like wow this green out my window you know and I was like wow cool and so I went back home and I was like what am I going to do I'm running my own label and now Metal Blade wants to hire me and then I, th three weeks went by and then I called Brian up and I said, you know what, make me an offer. I think I'm interested. And then he left me an offer on my answering machine. This is before cell phones this is like oh. 90, something like that. And, um, I don't get my, my dates are all screwed up. So don't ask me the dates. That's and cool. so basically I went into Dutch East India and I was giving a sales presentation to the sales staff and in the middle of it I said I don't know what made me say it I said I don't know what you're going to do because I'm not being here I'm moving to LA and everyone looked at me like what <laughs> and then Barry Tannenbaum called me goes you're really moving to LA and I said yeah I'm sorry and I went up and talked to him and he just shook my hand and said wish me the best and Debbie Southwood Smith had come in and was working with me it was Billy Polisi, I got Billy Polisi and Debbie Southwood Smith both came that helped me at Giant. There were three of us. Mm -hmm. And uh, Billy ended up going to Century Media, starting right. up their New York office. And Debbie ended up going to uh, um, a major label. I can't remember which one now. She ended up at AM because we worked together years right. later. But um, she, she signed uh, Temp. Uh, Oh my God. Why can't I think of the name of the band? She signed a really huge band, Stoner Rock Band. Uh, I'm like spacing out on them. A&M. No, this was at, uh, I can't remember the label she went to. I think it was Intercord. It doesn't matter. So they took over and they changed the name of the label to Rockville Records. Oh, and they, okay. Yeah, and that's what happened with Giant. It became Rockville. And then Barry really capitalized and sold the name Giant to this guy at Warner's for 75 grand. Of course, oh, I didn't man. get a nickel of that, but you know <laughs> that's how the record industry. I never got a nickel from Poison either, so that's how the record industry works, man. You know, like how, I think I told you, you. Did you not? How did you not get anything from? Do you not get any points or anything like that? The only one that ever gave me points ever was Case Wessels. I was the only guy that ever gave me a point on any record. Wow. Queens Irony. of the Stone Age. Queens of the Stone Age was the band that Debbie Southwood Smith signed. Right. She had ended up having a decent career because of that signing, obviously. Right, okay. In America, they were a huge band. I guess Enigma at the time <laughs> when when Poison came in, it, it, it's still a very young independent, right? So it's, yeah, it yeah, probably, we probably wouldn't have even occurred to you. Yeah, yeah, man. We were making like $30,000 a year, okay? We weren't making any money back then. It was like, I know that sounds like a lot back then, but it wasn't enough. It was, <laughs> so, we like, there's, there's, like before we move into the Metal Blade sort of era and, and the 90s and beyond, one of the things that I don't know a lot about is your, your, your punk sort of 
roots and your punk sort of uh, foundation, right? And I asked this to Howie Abrams the first time because I've heard Dag Nasty and Government Issue a number of times, like throughout just listening to any American music podcast. So can you tell me a bit about Dag Nasty? Well, Dag Nasty, the the reason why Dag Nasty had such a big buzz going is because Brian Baker from Minor Threat started Dag Nasty. And when he first started the band, there was a guy named Sean Brown, but he didn't last Mm -hmm. very long. And they got Dave Smalley, who came from a band called DYS, which was a big Boston hardcore band. So with the two of them together, people were like already calling it an all-star band. And and then they signed with Discord for two records. And I signed them from Discord and they had a different singer. And then Doug Carrion from The Descendants was on bass now. Mm -hmm. And so the two records I put out were a different lineup. But Brian Baker, who's now in Bad Religion, that's why Dag Nasty's so famous. He was he, minor threat in that bad religion, Dag Nasty in the middle. Because I know fuck all about the sort of like micro scenes, like the New York hardcore scene, presumably the Boston hardcore scene. I should have an old York hardcore scene because that's where old York is. Um, but and it's, it's kind of, it's the one thing I do know about those scenes are they're very difficult to penetrate and understand unless you're part of it. Like, I'm not massively into hardcore, right? But I know that if I went to a hardcore gig, I'd probably be in a much better position to comment on everything because I know it's more of a vibe kind of thing, right? It's not, you can't listen to a hardcore record and then go, all right, I'm into hardcore. You have to, like, you have to penetrate the scene, right? You have to penetrate the social circles. You need to attend the events. Otherwise, you're not going to understand it. Have I got it right? Yeah, you do. And interestingly enough, hardcore really started in D.C., and uh, in LA minor threat was from DC black flag was from LA they were the bands that really got going then the dead Kennedys from San Francisco then SSD control from Boston Mm -hmm. DYS gangrene the freeze all those bands came out so and then you know LA had their bands too circle jerks you know DC had other punk bands you know so there was like merging scenes that all have bad brains DC you know yeah yeah New York ironically enough didn't really they weren't part of the original hardcore scene they came along later <laughs> you know Chromags and those bands agnostic front they were Not came out the SSD and Minor Threat in 1980 were big. Agnostic Front and, and Chromags were 84, 85, 86. So they were the second wave, really, of hardcore. This is the oral history of hardcore with Steve Ricardo, isn't it? This is what I've always Well, you know, I, to, 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 to give you an idea how I got into it, I was in college radio before mm. I left. And on college radio, you could play anything. And I, we played a lot of hardcore and punk along with the Echo and the Bunny Men and U2 and, right. you know, R.E.M. But we also played the hardcore Crass, you know, from England, you know, mm-hmm. U.K. Subs, uh, yep. all the English bands, too, you know. I mean, we, we were – you could play anything on college radio. And I always liked the more aggressive stuff. I wasn't yeah. really a metalhead. I've never really been a full-on metalhead, although Black Sabbath and Iron Maiden and Judas Priest are some of my favorite bands of all time. Deep Purple, even, you know, they're metal. And then as far as thrash goes, I like a lot of those bands too. But I mostly have been more of a hardcore punk indie rock guy than a metal guy. But I do love metal. It's yeah, just yeah. that I don't, 
I that I don't I'm not like a metal head, you know. I think this is the difference, and this is what I kind of this is what I like to analyze because academically, I'm, I'm I kind of I observe <laughs> hardcore and I understand hardcore. I understand the names, which is why I'm bringing it all up. But I don't live it, and I don't therefore I don't know it, right? Whereas on the metal side. I'm there front row, headbanging. I understand the aesthetics of like metal thrashing mad. I understand like, I mean, I was actually saying to Monty recently about there was like a new wave of thrash that sort of came about maybe about 15 years ago. And um, I was sort of commenting I, that Municipal Waste with this band that sort of captured oh, yeah, yeah. what my generation thought thrash was back then. We have this sort of like, how do I describe it, man? It's like the airheads effect, right? We have this sort of nostalgia for this time that we weren't around for. And I think Municipal Waste really captured that aesthetic really well, even though it probably wasn't like that at all. But we have the idea in our head. And the point I was trying to get at was, because I'm a metal guy, I feel very locked into what that nostalgia was and what metal actually is in terms of going to the gigs and into the scenes and things like that. With hardcore, I'm always going to be an outsider until I fucking like get my, sm my face smashed in a, a Madball show or something like that. I feel like there's like, there's different, there's different trials into those. See, here, here's the thing, you know, you get the new uh, wave of British heavy metal and they influence so many bands in America, but the, the influences became very heavier. I mean, when Seal, Slayer and Metallica and those bands came out, they were almost like hardcore bands. It yeah. was really close. There was a lot of crossover in those early days, you know, between the hardcore metal bands. When I'm talking about 83, 84 now, it was like they crossed over a lot. So a lot of hardcore kids became thrash metal fans. You know? The big one's Motorhead, though, isn't it? That's the ultimate yeah, Motorhead, yeah, Venom, you know. Well, they're more like a black metal. But, you know, those yeah. bands could cross over. They definitely yeah. could cross over. But it feels like those scenes anyway, they kind of like existed, they compartmentalized themselves after the fact. Yeah. They kind of broke away. So you can say, we can say Motorhead's like a crossover band in retrospect, but at the time there was nothing like it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh like, yeah. They're a totally original band. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just oh, saying God, no. that a lot of the kids could go to both types of shows and you could get away with it you know there was of course the hardcore metal kids and the hardcore skinhead punks that wouldn't go to metal shows you know yeah. but you know i mean i saw what was happening with show no mercy and kill them all i mean it was pretty obvious to me okay this is close enough where the hardcore kids are gonna like this and they did they did so yeah. I mean, Rain in Blood, like, I don't trust anyone who doesn't like Rain in Blood. There's a place in everyone's head for that that aesthetic, right? There's Everyone has, like, a thing where it's, like, they can activate that riff or whatever, and it's quite cathartic, and I think that's the magic of that record. But I digress. So I imagine just to sort of, like, continue interrogating hardcore from an outsider perspective, the geography of these scenes doesn't matter, right? New York, Boston... DC, it doesn't really matter. It's just some way that we, it's in the same way we talk about Florida death metal and some like West Coast death metal. It doesn't really matter. It's just the way that we kind of position these bands because it gives us more of a picture, right? That's all. It's it's like also a respect thing, I think, you know, like the Boston hardcore bands are very proud of themselves. Like mm -hmm. the, the album, This Is Boston, Not LA came out, you know, when right. that came out, a lot of people were like, what? You're starting a fight with the LA bands? And that's kind of what ended up happening, you know? And there was a lot of brawling between really? Boston and hardcore, Boston and New York hardcore bands. There's stories about 
brawls breaking out when the bands would go to each other each other's town you know I mean, I saw a lot of that, you know, and it it existed and there was intimidation going on and one city thought they were tougher than the other. Boston's always had like a real attitude about everything. <laughs> they People up here, they don't call people here mass holes for nothing. Okay. I mean, they, you know, people think the New Yorkers are the assholes, but come up here and you'll find out, you know, I mean, it's like... <laughs> And then L.A. is a more, you know, laid back. So it was kind of a surprise that, you know, they became so important in the hardcore scene. But Henry Rollins is from D.C., you know. Right. So a lot of these guys moved out to California and then, the you know, got in bands, you know. But I really do like the the L.A. hardcore bands. I'd say Boston, L.A. and New York are my, I mean, uh, D.C. are my favorite. You know, San Francisco had the Dead Kennedys and Flipper and bands like that. And then there were other bands in different scenes. But, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter. You're right, because Florida, I haven't heard anybody talk about that Florida death metal scene in a while. But Deicide and those bands were like, when they came out, they were the scariest fuckers around, man. You kidding me? Glenn Benton? getting a fight every night wherever he was man he never backed down from anybody you know sick contractually obliged to uh to research them now (laughs) um to round off this oral history of hardcore so like so now you know that i'm an outsider on this sort of thing i'm not i'm not gonna i have i have no root in right so can you recommend me like three hardcore records that you'd recommend to like a fucking like like, 12 year old You've really taken me in directions I didn't think I was going into. Oh, dude, I'm like, dude, I'm like, like I said, no prep, but I know where, I feel like I know where your head's at, like, a lot of the time, so I'm like, and, but I also know what I don't know, so I'm like, I know what I can use Steve for. Okay, yeah. I could, I'm going to pull these out of my, out of out. Here, don't, don't, don't kid, think too much about it. The kids will have their say, SSD, definitely. Uh, the mi- minor threat out of step, and then I would say, um, uh, damage black flag but i do like a lot of other records so i'm a big flipper fan and they pissed off the rest a lot of people in hardcore but i like generic flipper i put that record up there then i like bands like the big boys from texas fun 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 and uh the freeze land of the lost that's way more than three i'm sorry no it's cool (laughs) wild in the streets circle jerks wild in the streets that's a great one that's a great one it matters right now because at the minute I'm in, I'm in the middle of a break. So I'm like, I'm going to pull my head out of my ass and stop listening to Roadrunner records for like fucking five minutes. And I'm going to, I'm going to put like the top three, the kids will have their say out of step and damage. I'm going to put them on just like on rotation and just obsess over it. Cause I think that's how I find that the way I connect with music more is if I put it on, if I force myself to like have it in the car, like this is why CDs were so good because you unless you were bothered to take it out, you'd just hear it again and again, and it'd start building itself into your muscle memory. If I just get the guitar out and start just jamming along, then it'll, it'll connect more. And I'm hoping the, to connect something totally different. The uh, Jerry's Kids is This My World. Okay, just like, let me start all over again, because if I don't have Jerry's Kids is This my, Not My World in the top three, I'd be out of my mind. So I'm sorry, what Jerry's what Kids. I, what am I kicking out? Am I kicking out Black Flag, Minor Threat, or SSD? For, for Jerry's kids, in favor of Jerry's kids. You got You got to choose. <laughs> oh my God, I would take Jerry's. I can't kick out SSD. 
or I can't, I can't kick out minor threat. So it's going to have to be a uh, black flag. You know, well, I, I actually already did that because I'm, I'm familiar with damage. So I was like, ah, there we go. Yeah. I didn't know that record quite well. Jerry's so. kids though. They were the best live band ever. Yeah. I yeah. mean, as far as hardcore goes, and that lineup had Chris Doherty from Gangrene. Oh, so yeah, it was yeah. like, and you know, this, um, this is Boston Not LA compilation has Jerry's Kids and Gangrene on it doing multiple songs. So that could be in my top three too. Man, I'm a, I'm a real asshole when it comes to picking top threes. I love lists, but that's putting me on the spot right there. Does have hard, has hardcore aged well, right? And I'm asking this because. I can't sit in a field and listen to wheels, the 12-minute versions of Wheels of Steel. I can't listen to – because I mean, I'm, Saxon, is, Saxon is still pretty good, right? They're still doing what they're, they're doing. But I think, like, it had its time and it's carried forward, whereas Iron Maiden are fucking delivering the goods. Uh, I've, actually, that's quite a contentious, a contentious thought because post-2000s Maiden is very much more a proggy thing. But there's, like, for example, Slayer before the pact in were just, like, relentlessly delivering the same kind of thing, right, in a really good way. And I think metal – can age well under the right circumstances. So are you seeing like 60-year-old hardcore bands delivering the goods or are they all... Well, if they're the old band, at the older bands, if they go on tour, I have tickets to go see the Circle Jerks when they come right. to town. But, you know, I think as far as the hardcore scene goes, the second wave was, for me, the end of it. You know, after Agnostic really? Front and Cro-Mags and those bands, I don't really... Anything that happened like after that was okay, but it's not going to be 80 to 84 ever again. Oh, sure. But, I mean, do those bands still deliver though? When you see Agnostic Front these days, are they still like, this is still a spectacle and an experience? Or is it, is it kind of like, oh, they've lost it? Okay, I'm just going to give you one example. In 2011, they had a Boston Hardcore reunion show and Slapshot, who I didn't mention, they're very good. Slapshot, DYS, Gangrene, and Jerry's Kids all played, and they all delivered the goods. Right, okay, good. It was good, great. Good. And But, you know, if Chris Doherty didn't have a stroke and he couldn't play anymore, Gangrene would probably still be out there playing right now. The only band that hasn't come back and done a reunion is SSD Control, and it's upsetting to a lot of people they have minor threat will never do a reunion either probably you know bad brains you know they're i don't i don't think they're gonna i think they're done too you know black flag there were two versions of black flag on tour at the same time a couple of years ago <laughs> you know keith morris was fronting one and then greg ginn had the other one with three unknown guys the guitar player right so I, I would still go see any of those bands. Right, okay. Yeah, Agnostic yeah. Front, too. I don't think they would. They're, they're a consistently good band. Yeah. Chromags have split into two bands, too. So a lot of these bands have kind of split. I fucking hate when that happens. I, Queensryche I, I, did it, too, and they're not hardcore. <laughs> it's, it's when they use the same name, which bothers me. Yeah. When they say it's some, like John Smith's fucking whatever it is it's, it bothers me i think like it, i have like an issue with names anyway i don't when when someone fucks off and does like a solo thing i i think they shouldn't name it after themselves because it puts me off the only you know, exception is slash slash had delivered good solo stuff yeah i don't want to be one of those uh, typical old guys that says everything was good way back then and nothing's yeah. good now because i do find good records coming out here and there mm. you know it's just that i i feel like 
as far as classic rock goes, the 70s were unbelievable, and it's going to be hard to top that. And then the late 70s punk scene, and then the early 80s hardcore, and then the 80s metal. To me, that was all the best stuff. Mm. 90s had a lot of big selling records, you know, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Alice in Chains. I used to name four Seattle bands in a row, by the way. <laughs> you know, they were all good bands, and there were other bands from around the world that came out, but to me, the 70s and 80s were, like, uncomparable. I think a lot of it is to do with um, <clears throat> focal points and saturation, right? Because in the 70s, if you could get five lads who played instruments to actually get in a van and go up the M1 and play in your shithole town, that's quite an achievement in itself worthy of your five quid in a way, right? But these days, because any can do it, it's, it's, um, it's not so much that it's less valuable, but it's less... Uh, it's much more difficult to approach. Right? It's much more difficult to gather momentum. So It's like saying, uh, who's going to be the next queen, you know? I yeah. mean, there's never going to be another band that good, you know? I and mean... It, it, the only way you can get anything close to that is if the particular band can cultivate their own vibe and cultivate their, cultivate their own sort of enthusiasm. Okay, that's what Queen did. They had a very specific kind of vibe to them, right? And, and it's going to be very difficult for bands to do that under the current circumstances. That's not saying that today's shit. It's just saying that the fans have to work harder to pledge their support. And it, it's, it's a different economic, um, uh, it's a different economic climate to do so. Right. Um, but yeah, no, it's, 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 I don't know what, I don't know what to say about that in terms of like, a lot of it's where I'm coming from with the Roadrunner thing. Right. Cause I bet there's like, I bet there's 10 bands. My favorite bands I made in ACDC quite cliched. There's some other other great bands, which I'll send you after this, actually, because I think there's some that you might like. But there's probably like 10 or 20 bands I would like more than Iron Maiden and ACDC. But <clears> I'll <throat> never hear from them because they slipped through the net because there wasn't the infrastructure yeah. there. You know what I mean? <clears throat> yeah, I know what you mean. With me, I've got to say something about ACDC. I didn't like them after Bon Scott died. I still don't. I was a big Bon Scott fan, but Brian Johnson, nothing against them. I just don't think they ever came close to what they were even though they mm. sold more records i think yeah, you know, they, they, sorry go on. i was gonna say you know they just had a big you know festival here in boston and the headliners were metallica and uh weezer you know they were bands that foo fighters was supposed to be but they had to cancel these are bands that have been around for like 20 30 years yeah, they yeah. can't get right now people always say to me well who do you think's the best band in the world right now and i'm like arcade fire i mean i don't know you know it's like you can't really compare to those bands you know i wonder what it's like because i think like those headlining slots are kind of like the king makers in a way um and i bet whoever's organizing them especially these days <laughs> like right what are we going to do are we going to punt on are we going to punt on turnstile are we going to punt on fucking atreyu are we going to punt on these bands or should we just go let's do the metallica iron maiden foo fighters cycle because like, what's going to sell? And there needs to there needs to be some certainty. But someone out there is going to go like, fuck it, Saturday Night Donington. It's going to be this little baby band that has two records out. The last Turnstile record, by the way, is excellent. So that's yeah. a good band that you brought. Naked Reagan too. They put out a new record. They've been around for thirty years. They're a Chicago punk band, you know. It's really good. So it's not. Some of these bands are still putting out good records, you know. I mean, Turn Turnstile. I don't think ten years old. Maybe that. No, I think less you know. than that. I think about twenty. Yeah. So yeah, I, yeah, but I, you know, Nine Inch Nails was the other headliner at Boston Calling that I couldn't remember. So. Right. 
think about that. You know, Nine Inch Nails, Metallica, Weezer, Foo Fighters. Those are the bands that get to headline the big festivals. Yeah. Hey, did you Young speak to Dave, Dave Rath the other night when we were in? Briefly. Briefly. Turnstile, he signed Turnstile. He did? Yeah, it was a road runner. Wow. Good yeah. for him. They were? Yeah. <laughs> ah. Oh, yeah, they are. You're right. They are. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a good record, man. Yeah, I'm sorry. I knew that. I don't know what I was I spaced out there for a sec. It happens, man. You know, it's been a lot of partying over the years. That's why I don't drink anymore. You know, <laughs> you want to talk about Metal Blade Records before I forget that I worked there? Uh, I was going to go. So we go. Let's jump back into the chronology. Now I've had my oral history of hardcore. You really took me on a real sidebar there that I wasn't good, no, I was, was good. Dude, dude, I'm like. Yeah, dude, I've, I've, I'm here. To, I'm here representing like the the outside of people who don't understand like this click in this scene, right? And I'm not like you know. You should have that conversation about hardcore with Mike Gitter. He's he knows more about hard the hardcore history than anyone does. Yeah, he's like the that. king of hardcore. Yeah, he <laughs> is. He really is. I'm not kidding. Um, uh, you want to know about what happened when I got to Metal Blade? Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah let's, let's jump back into into the life and times. Um, yeah. So you well, what, presumably get another one way to get back to LA, right? See, the the advantage I had with Metal Blade is that when I worked at Enigma, we distributed the Metal Blade stuff. Right. So I knew, so I was selling Show No Mercy and Haunting the Chapel and, and Animosity by Corrosion of Conformity nice. and all those records, you know, already. So I knew about them. And Brian Slagle, this is no exaggeration. He's probably the nicest guy in the music business I've ever known in my life. Okay. He's just always been that way. He's just a good guy. And I love when someone says talk shit to me about Brian, I'm like, you don't know what you're talking about. He's the one that put Metallica and Slayer and all those bands out before anyone else. Mm. So he he started the whole thing with the, the resurgence of metal in America. Roadrunner and labels like that followed in his footsteps. So for me to get there and work for him was really an honor for me. And, you know, I got to work with so many good bands there. I only signed one band because I was the director of marketing there. You right. know, my job was to sell records, you know. But I did sign Eviction from Pittsburgh, and they never really took off. But Brian let me sign them. And I was the product manager for other bands like Intruder and Viking. But mostly my job was making sure that uh, Lizzie Borden, Fate's Warning, Armored Saint... <laughs> DRI, you know, to make sure those bands got bigger. And mm. I think we accomplished a lot, you know, in that, that time period that I was working there. We ended up getting a deal with Warner Brothers for distribution. We yeah. also had the Goo Goo Dolls. That didn't hurt at all to have them. Because even though they weren't a metal band, Warner Brothers really liked them a lot. Mm. So they were an intricate part of the deal. My day-to-day -day in that office was always a trip. Um, the people that worked there were all cool. I mean, a lot of them went on to have really, really good careers. Cheryl Valentine was a radio person. She worked for labels for years. Brian Lima, he went to Epic. They were in our New York office, you know, and all of us, a lot of us ended up at major labels, you know, that worked there. It was a really good place to work. And Brian, like I said, and Mike Faley, too, was the president of the label. And he ran the day-to-day -day operations. But anytime I ever wanted to go on a trip or go anywhere, Brian said, go 
do what you have to do. Like I would visit branch offices because we had SEMA for a little while first before Warner Brothers uh, Capital Distribution. Some of our records went through there and then we got Warner was the big deal, but that didn't last either. Metal Blade has always had to like kind of carve their own way. And that's why they, when everyone was falling down and falling apart, Metal Blade never left. What tell me about the Warner D oh, tell me about the Warner World and then pre oh, sorry, pre-Warner World to Warner World. What didn't they get? I assume because if you if you're saying that Metal Blade carved their own way and the Warner deal fell through after a while, what was the difference? Did they not know how to handle the metal Blade Exactly. Parts? Like right. Google Dolls did really good, but I can't think of any other metal bands that really flourished in the Warner Brother deal. And I think that's why the deal didn't work out. But you know, I had left by the time they that they were really kicking in on that deal so that here's the thing when you're working at a label sometimes you not have time to pay attention to what's going on everywhere else that's yeah, why yeah. i didn't know some of the bands that ended up on roadrun i wasn't paying attention <laughs> i really wasn't i was worried about what i was doing sure. i didn't know what they were doing and the same thing with you know other labels after i left i don't know what happened you know and all I know is that Metal Blade made it through some really difficult times because around 2008 and on, it became really difficult to keep a record label going. You had to have really good bands that sold to the mainstream, otherwise you would not survive. But they kept their niche mm-hmm. with, the, with the lower metal bands. And Brian's had so many, you know, yeah. Cannibal Corpse was just had gotten signed when I was there. And there's so many, I can't remember them all. It was like really, the ones I named were the bands that were really part of the Metal Blade family. Like all the guys in Armored Saint, they're like best friends with Brian Slagle. You know, they've always have been, you know, even yeah. when Bush went to, to Anthrax, he's still, I remember hanging out with Bush when he was in Anthrax. And one time Brian came in, the three of us went to see a hockey game in Boston once. We all went to Boston to walk and none of us were in the same place. You know, that's what I liked about Brian. You know, he always maintained like Betsy Bitch, you know, the band Bitch. Yep. She's like the queen of Metal Blade. She's been friends with Brian since day one, since Brian was in his garage, you know. We had other cool bands. Like, we had Candlemas. When they came to town, I got to hang out with them. Phil Mogg, here's one of my favorite stories about um, when I worked at Metal Blade. Brian asked me if I could take care of Phil Mogg when when he came to town, because we put a UFO record out. Mm -hmm. So I went and picked him up at his hotel. It was like 9.30 in the morning. And I said, we have a lot of stuff planned for you, interviews and everything. He goes, can you, can I get some beer first? I'm like, all right. So I took him to a liquor store and he got a tall boy. And then I took him to the office and he went, Brian didn't give a shit. Phil comes walking in with a tall boy. And um, two good things happened when he was there. One was there was an intern at Metal Blade and she had all the UFO records. I think they're like 22 at that time. And he came, she came in with all of them and asked me if I could get him to sign them. And I was like, 22 records, something like that. And I'm like, I don't know. So I called her in the, in the office. He was sitting in the office. He was in between breaks and she, he had the stack and she had the stack and he just smiled. He signed every single record for her (laughs) and told us a story about every record. Wow. 
And then he wanted to go to the rainbow to meet some friends. And it's because of him that I got to meet Lemmy and Sean Entwistle that are sitting at the bar at the rainbow. Of course, I was the third, you know, standing there. I didn't know what to say. And then he's like, oh, those aren't my friends we were going to meet. Got to hang out with Lita Ford and Chris Holmes from Wasp. No it was like, that's what it was like being with Phil. All, all That was one of the greatest <laughs> two, three days of my life working at Metal Blade was like, and music industry career actually was incredible. And, and, you know, everyone used to love Metal Blade too. And we threw a party, dude. It was the best party. Yeah. You know, everyone would come to the Metal Blade parties and we'd go to conventions. We'd all be on panels, you know, at the new music seminar and, foundations cmj convention we i was always on some retail panel because i worked there you know speaking of which then and then i've asked alan becker this and so i've had his side of it and i've asked a couple of people this so how important is distribution in in this sort of like in the retail arm of of metal especially fringe not metal as in like any kind of fringe music hardcore or metal or just rock of this time how fucking critical is distribution because my perception Extremely. is these are the guys that know the shops and the ones that can say you want to stock the neighborhoods why well, do I want to stock the neighborhoods because I've never fucking heard of them because A, B, C and D right and it's that relationship that propagates those sales which generates more music have I got the right end of it? Yeah you're asking the right person because I worked for Green World Distribution under the Enigma umbrella and then my job was to sell records to all of those companies like yeah Alan Becker was the buyer at Important. He was the one I was selling records to when I was at uh, Enigma, Metal Blade, Roadrunner, you name it. All of those companies, all Important was number one, them and Gem Distribution, which were based in New York also. Caroline, Rough Trade, uh, and some of the other ones were like a level lower. But Important and Gem were the big ones on the East Coast. Green World was the big one on the West Coast until they went out of business and then important and gem picked up the slack um new bands were extremely difficult you know when you had new bands it was very difficult to get they would not take a lot but if a new if a band that was established had a record come out like i don't know for sure but i'm willing to bet that the striper soldiers on the command record that shipped ninety thousand units independently was probably the biggest independently distributed record at that time it was enormous Mm -hmm. when that came out and then you know all those other bands like metallica and slayer when they were still on independent labels their sales went got went through the roof the rat ep was really really huge i remember that one Mm -hmm. motley crew on leather records you know before they get signed you know if you didn't have those guys working your records to their key accounts. At that time, America was loaded with record stores. The Musicland chain, Transworld, you know, Record Bar, Strawberries, Waxy Maxi, wherever, the Warehouse, Licorice Pizza, they even named the movie after them. Uh, you know, <laughs> all of these record stores, you wanted to get as many quantity, big, big quantities in all of those. So it was extremely important. And you had to go, you know, you had to do a lot of ass kissing with those guys. And I did had to, I would go and meet with all of them. You know, I would go to important and Jim and, you know, and Caroline, I knew Steve Daly at Caroline. He was yeah. an English dude. He was a good dude. You know, rough trade was a little smaller, 
and you know, big state, they were smaller. Twin Cities and Minneapolis, a little smaller, but they were all important. We would, mm -hmm. when a record came, we would start probably about a month before the record came out. I'd start telling them, give them the catalog number, and then they'd call their connections. Right. Whoever handled Music Land would call Music Land. Whoever handled Strawberries would call Strawberries. Right. So I don't know if I answered your question. But no, you did really totally. I think the key thing there is like, America was loaded with record stores at that time, right? Yeah, there was a lot. Now there's now there's cool vinyl stores popping up around. Vinyl's made a huge comeback here, but the mall stores are not a thing anymore. Used it's to be able to go in every mall and there'd be like three or four record stores in every mall. I, I don't envy like the retail line these days because while vinyl is making good money right I, I mean my understanding is like the money in music is kind of similar to what it used to be from a real retail perspective because we've got different price points where you'd normally spend five bucks on a cd now you've got five bucks 20 bucks on the vinyl tw uh, 50 bucks on vinyl gig ticket membership of the fan there's different price points and you can kind of like level everything off by then but as you say you have vinyl shops which are typically coffee shops with vinyl listening points right yeah so, people, so it's hard to push the $30 vinyl in that setting. And then there are some good used. Yeah. The used vinyl store, the ones that have used to in America are good mm -hmm. stores. Those are the yeah. kind of stores I go to. If they have new and used, I usually end up buying the used ones. To be honest yeah, yeah. With that. Paying $30 for a new record is ridiculous. At, at the same time though, most people will probably buy from the band straight direct, right? Yes, absolutely. So, so it's difficult these days. Um, just going back to Metal Blade before we go back onto the life and times. Did you work that new wave, new wave of British heavy metal record? With yeah, I, I, that, that's, that was another high point because Brian came into my office one day and he goes, call this guy. And he gave me Lars's phone number. So I got to call Lars. Lars did the liner notes, I believe, on that record. Yeah. And he, Brian said, talk to Lars because I didn't really know much about Diamond Head and all the bands who were on there. Saxon, I can't even remember all the bands who were on that record. It was a double album. And I talked to Lars on the phone and I just took a lot of notes. He kept me on the phone for like an hour. He was cool though. It was cool. So how does how does Metal Blade course through and how long were we there for? Three years, I think. Three. Uh, right. It's kind of sad why I left Metal Blade, but there was You don't um, have to go into it if you don't want. Well, you know what? Here's the thing about myself is I try to be brutally honest about everything that's happened in my career. And, mm. and you know, sometimes I don't always get along. I didn't get along with people. And they had a lawyer there that he his office was in our office and him and I were constantly butting heads. And I finally got sick of him. And one day I just told Brian, I'm going to leave. And I left. And you know what? I thought I was going to take a break. <laughs> my plan was to leave and take a break. But then I ended up getting this crazy co phone call. I'm going to segue for you. I cool. get this crazy phone call from this guy at Hits Magazine, Bud Scoppa. And he's like, you're not going to believe this, but Michael Douglas is starting a record label. And I got a meeting. Will you come to the meeting with me? I'm like, what? You want me to go to a meeting with you? He said, yeah, you're the one that's been working for all these labels. So I went. And here's the funny thing about it. I ended up working there and he didn't. <laughs> third stone music and it was most we didn't re, it wasn't really a record label because we only ended up putting two records out while i was there it was um saigon kick and the neighborhoods 
who I'd signed right. for the third time, okay, because I signed <laughs> them twice already, and it went through Atlantic. My job mostly was to be an assistant on music uh, to the music supervisor, Dick Rudolph, and like right. just sign people to publishing deals. I signed a bunch of publishing deals there. It's an amazing Nothing name, that Dick became normally hu enormously huge. But it was interesting because I had meetings with people that I ended up working with later, like Cheryl Crow came mm -hmm. in once and we had a meeting with her about a publishing deal. I She didn't do a deal with us, but I ended up at A&M. She was on A&M. Right, so, okay. Like that's how things happen, but... Third Stone to me, I was there two years and it, and they folded. They ended up going down. It was like a tax write-off for the great actor, Michael Douglas, I guess. <laughs> but I got to meet Michael Douglas and I got to be in a movie because I worked there. I was in a movie called Hard Promises. I played bass in the band. That was great. <laughs> and uh, I got to go to a lot of movie premieres and I met a ton of actors. Like right. one time I'm in the bathroom taking a leak and Jean-Claude Van Damme's pissing next to me. It was awesome, man, you know. How you doing, Jean-Claude Van Damme? You know, and I met like Kiefer Sutherland and Julia Roberts, Emilio Estevez, Christian Slater. I met John Bon Jovi because he did the music for Hard Promises, and I ended up in this party with all these people on a, I'm not Hard Promises, uh, Young Guns too, and I okay. ended up in this party with everybody, and I'm talking to all these people. So that was the good part of that job, but it wasn't really a music job. It wasn't until after that that I got back into the game, and I worked for A&M Records, and that's where so I- that, So it kind of was a break in a weird way then. Yeah. <laughs> that's yep. fucking so funny. Uh, that's ridiculous but I, you know it was interesting having, being around actors a lot I learned a lot from that experience you know and Michael Tell Douglas I got to you know a few times he came out and had drinks with us and he was a cool dude you know he was just you know he was kind of like Gordon Gecko on Wall Street in person you know it was weird but you know it was it was I want to I ask what you learn from being around actors, but I'm going to lead in with the question of like, what's the main difference between actors and musicians? Musicians, because I know these are all like, because I work with musicians quite a lot, like outside of the roadrunner thing, right? So, and I know that a lot of them are sort of neurotic, weird fucking people. And I kind of I like almost it. said ego is the big difference, but no, <laughs> that was not the big difference. The egos were very similar. And I guess in some cases, rock stars had bigger egos than, than actors. Yeah. Um, I think music, I think for me, the biggest difference that I would notice from the actors I know is that musicians, it really is 24-7. Actors, it's like they go play their part and that's it. Musicians, though, they're constantly living their lifestyle. They're constantly right. looking and living the lifestyle. That's the biggest difference, I would say. And I've had friends in both of those areas and still do. You know, but I think when you're a rock star, you want to be, or you grow up, you want to be a rock star. You're a rock star 24 seven. Most of them. Yeah. Most yeah. of them. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I was thought. And many um, die young, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to like, I'm, I'm obviously I'm trying to understand the character of a musician a little bit more. I know it's, it's a bit too fucking artsy fartsy, but it's like, we all, everyone has so many different sort of, walks of life and so many different foundations of which their personalities and their general output and outgoingness is built upon. And um, I thought I knew how to deal with musicians, right? I thought I knew how to deal with them. 
And then when I've, when you, you sit down in front of them and have like a different kind of relationship, because normally I'm doing sound for them. It's a lot different. It's a different kind of intense than when you sat in front of them and trying to extract information from them. So I'm just interested to, to, to ask. The one thing, the there. one thing I've noticed from a lot of musicians, not the ones I've become really close to is if you work for a label or you're on the industry side, they don't trust you at all. Yeah. They really don't. They have no trust for you whatsoever. You know, even, you know, I've had, I've had people even say to me, man, I used to think that you were a total A&R weasel, you know, when I first met you, but then I realized you're, you're more than that. You know, they don't, they don't, they don't like you. I've heard people badmouth every, it's always the label's fault when the record doesn't break. It's never the band's fault. God forbid they did something wrong, you know? (laughs) I'm, and I'm sorry to all the musicians out there that are listening because I have a lot of most of my closest friends are musicians, but they most of them will not take the blame <laughs> for where they went wrong, you know. And one of the difficult things about the documentary is that people think I'm working with Roadrunner. It's like, no, dude, I'm fucking nobody. You know, so there's like an inbuilt distrust for me for some people. I'm going to ask you a question about that documentary, but as soon as we finish up with this stuff, I I do have a question for you. Yeah. At the, yeah. We'll wait till the end. We'll do that. that. So no, I don't cool. really, there's not much else I can tell you about uh, Third Stone other than I met some really cool people. Mick Taylor, I had an yeah. interview with once. He came into my office, not an interview, wow. but he came in and played me his music from the Stones. Earl Slick who played with David Bowie for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mentioned John Bon Jovi. It would do Paula Abdul. I met with her once. You know, it was like you. I got to meet really cool people at Third Stone. before or after the plane crash? Uh, who's plane crash? Paula Abdul. There's a massive conspiracy theory about Paula Abdul. I don't know anything about the plane crash. Oh, dude, I'll, I'll see you this video. It, it's, so, it's so much fun. It's basically a conspiracy theory about this plane crash she was in. So in about '95, she was in. A, um, she was in a. Pl- I'll tell you, it's actually. This would like- be before that. <laughs> I met. This would be before that. This would be '91, '90, '91-ish. Oh, like okay, I said, my enough. years, my years are a little off here on some of this stuff. <laughs> but you know, Third Stone, you know, I my time just ran out there. I got bored really quickly. I didn't work with a lot of labels for a long, long time. A and M was the one I was with the longest. Sure. But I would get bored and I would move on, or someone would come along and steal me from a label, like what happened with Roadrunner and Enigma mm. and Metal Blade and Giant. You know, it was just you know, but. Um, you know, after I left, I didn't, I didn't have a very long break after I left. Uh, I never had any breaks, dude, <laughs> until, until I left AM. and And then I finally, when I started my own management company, I didn't have a break either, but from labels I did. But uh, Brian Huttenhauer, when I was at Metal Blade, something I didn't mention to you that was very interesting is all these major labels would come to us and ask us to help them develop their artists. Like really? I, remember, I worked on Mother Love Bone. Wow. I worked on no uh, Jane's Addiction. Yeah. I worked on Circus of Power, Little Caesar, Michael Monroe, because Geffen released the, the Hanoi ca- uh, catalog, mm-hmm. and they hired us to do that. And then uh, Polly Graham had Michael Monroe's solo record, and they hired us to do that. Well, when AM came to us and we worked on Soundgarden before Louder Than Love, 
came out, I met Brian Huttenhauer, who signed Soundgarden. So right. after I was with Third Stone, one night I was at the Coconut Teaser, where all A&R guys would go every Thursday night, and they would, like, check out new talent. They Ask Cap's Best Kept Secrets, it was called. And I saw Brian there, and Brian's like, hey, what's up, man? What, what are you doing? And I told him what I was doing with Third Stone, but I knew I wasn't going to be there. He goes, well, keep in touch. So I saw him again, and he's like, would you ever be, and this was after I had just left Third Stone, he goes, would you be interested in, interested in being an A&R consultant? And I'm like, I'm not sure what that is, but okay. So I went down, I met with him at A&M, and I had to meet with David Anderley, who was like a legend. He used to be A&R guy for the Beach Boys and the Doors. Mm -hmm. And they hired me as an A&R consultant. Wow. And all I did was listen to all the tapes that Brian didn't want to listen to, hundreds and hundreds. <laughs> and I would have access to A&M studios, and I could go in there with bands. Like I brought Joey Vera in there to record his solo stuff. He ended up... AM passed, but he released it on his own. I mm -hmm. brought Down by Law in there. AM passed. They released their recordings. They wow. had the rights to the recordings. So that was really fun. And after I was doing that for about a year, Brian came up with this idea. He's like, you know, we don't really have a metal alternative department at AM. Would you be interested if I set up a meeting with the marketing department doing that? And I was like, Sure, because he had Damn the Machine, which was Chris Poland's band, yep. and Paw, and Monster Magnet, and Therapy, and all these bands at A&M kind of like, what are we going to do with these yeah, bands? Yeah, yeah. We don't know what to do. So they got me, and they made me that guy. Mm. And that's how I ended up moving away from A&R into marketing. Wow. And they gave me this director of alternative marketing title. And that's when that's my awesome. life really got interesting because my first thing they had me do was go on the road with Damn the Machine. Right. It was really cool because Chris Poland, even though he got kicked out of Megadeth because, you know, they had a drug problem going on, him and Mustaine, and they wanted to split them up. He still had this reputation where everyone knew that Peace Sells, who's buying, you know, those first killing, whatever the first record, those Killing two business. Megadeth records were like, people love those records. Yeah. So I got to go on the road with Chris Paul and every night people would come after him with their Megadeth records looking for a signature. But it was a really fun band to be on the road with. And then I went on the road with Paw, Monster Magnet. Then other bands that weren't even heavy, they started sending me out with more mainstream bands. I had to cover Brian Adams shows, Sting shows, Soundgarden, Sheryl Crow, mm -hmm. Patty Griffin, Amy Grant, you name it. It was like I was all over the place. And yeah, I did yeah. that for like six, seven years. I was wow. like just running around like a maniac, you know, and that was I didn't, it was funny though. I got to tell you, man, the whole time I was at a &M, I never felt like I fit in. Yeah. I always felt like an oddball working there. You know, it was like really hard for me because I had that independent record mindset, you know, <laughs> but you know, I had a nice expense account, which I used a lot. <laughs> like I remember one time Dishwalla, you know, the band Dishwalla, they had a, they had a big hit in America. They had a gold record. I went out to, I took them out to dinner after show one night and I was talking to some 
guy from a retail chain outside. I said, you guys go in the restaurant. I'll catch up with you. And I get in there and there's a bunch of bottles of wine on the table. It's an Italian restaurant. I didn't think nothing of it. So we ordered dinner. We ate and everything. And the waitress handed me the bill. And I looked and it was 1400 bucks. I'm like, fuck. Fuck, what the fuck is this? And the wine for like $150 bottles of wine. <laughs> I had to call my boss the next day, Richie Gallon. I'm like, Richie. I have a hundred, I had a $1,400 bill last night. I had to give like a $300 tip because I couldn't be an asshole and not give a tip. He's yeah. like, eh, don't worry about it. it. Happens to all of us. It was like, no, <laughs> and I realized, so this is how, you know, the whole major label thing works. The recoupment. Don't worry. Dish Wallace, dish Wallace paying for that. Not you. And I'm like, so you know there are a lot of things about major labels that are like really shady dude it was shady and then yeah. i get to hear all the stories about what went on in the old days at AM. forget it man the payola the hookers the whole nine yards man it's all true it's all true it all happens you know? fuck man so when when you leave AM, then this is you must we must be in the, the new millennium at this point it was oh, close. It was close. And I was ready to leave And I, because I had a band I was managing already and I was working for AM. Nothing came of them. Two of the members ended up on majors, but nothing came of it. They were called Three and a Half Girls. And I decided I wanted to be a manager. So right. I then spent the next 15, yeah, about 15 years. No, no, not 15. Uh, yeah, 15 years I spent managing and I started my own label, Red Car Records, which was a total bad timing. We spent all this money and lost all this money and I just couldn't, it, nobody bought records anymore by that time. That was like 2005, 6, oh, 7, sure. 8. Yeah, yeah. So I what made you want to know, get into management then? Why, what, what was the light bulb moment? I decided that I, I, I wanted to be on the side of the bands and not on the side of the label. Like I never let any bands I work with do publishing deals. And I was more, I was on their side. I was, I decided, fuck the labels. And, you know, I knew I had connections at labels, <laughs> but I never got anyone signed to a major because it was too late. By 2000, nobody was getting signed anymore to major labels. Sure. And then Napster and everything, just, everything went, wow, you know, crashed like hell. That's why I'm, I'm impressed with, labels like metal blade and roadrunner that they managed to last through all that i don't know how yeah. they did what they did and some other independents have last too but none of the majors did they all went down the toilet so you've been managing for 15 years then so what let's all you were managing for 15 years so when did you stop that like 2015 2015 yeah the love me when the love me nots broke up that was the end of the road for me i was like you know what? i'm gonna take a break and then it was a few years after that uh it was actually that was more like 2016 i think they yeah. broke up because it was not it was only a couple of years after that that i started thinking about the podcast you know and i was like i can talk you know I'm like you, man. We can just talk. We're talk we've already been talking for an hour and 20 minutes. Before you know? we get to the podcast then, so what were the highlights of the management career then? Because this is something which I think is like, I think it takes a particular mindset and a particular amount of patience because like, while while you're always on the band's side from a label perspective up to this point, now you get to see them in a different light, right? 
Yeah, well, all of the bands, well, not all of them, but several of the bands I got worked with got good deals in independent labels. Mm -hmm. uh, the big highlight, I'd have to say, the couple of the big highlights, the Charms, um, you know, they got signed to Wicked Cool, uh, which turned out to be a really shitty deal. But the good thing about it is, is they got to do a national tour with the New York Dolls. Oh, and they toured with Ian Hunter and the Zombies. And they toured with Cheap Trek. So that was great. When you have a band on the road with bands like that, and, you know, they were like a $500 a night band, which means, you know, my 10% of that was only $50. But every night, because you didn't yeah. make any money. I didn't make any money, man. I was, I would have some months I'd make $4,000 and next month I'd make $400. It was like a licensing. And the other highlight was the Love Me Nots. We got a T-Mobile commercial. The Gorgor Girls I worked with for a little while, we got a deal with them. And a lot of the other bands, uh, they put their own records out and I helped them. I pretty much had to do everything. I was like the label and the manager. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun. I, can, I imagine it's a lot of work. I'm not, I don't manage a label, nor do I manage a band, but I've got this fucking project, which is like, I imagine a lot of the lanes that I'm trying to travel down are very similar because a lot of them are like licensing, uh, managing resources and people and trying to get the right output that has the right, captures the right fucking mood and all this stuff. It must be like 15 I years of a long fucking haul for that. Yeah, I don't mind admitting it, but, you know, I put myself in an enormous um, financial hole and basically went broke <laughs> because, you know, I, I kept thinking next month is going to be better. Next month. No, next month. No, one more month. Another month. Yeah. It never got better. I mean, I had a few high points here and there, but I never had the money. The most successful managers have a lot of money, you know? Yeah. If you don't have money, forget it. And I didn't have any money. So mm, it, yeah. it ended up causing me never to get married, which is a good thing, actually, I think. <laughs> no kids, because I married the music business. Yeah. And, you know, I don't have regrets about this. I have no regrets about anything I did. From 84 to 2016, I was in it. You know, I was in the game. Now, you know what? I feel like I'm in the game now, you know, and I'm not really in it, but I feel like I'm in it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Not, not that you need any, any, anything from me, but it's in the 18 months that I've known you, you've never come across like as a, as a damaged, as a, as a broken, uh, what's the, the, the damaged goods of the music industry? Because some people come out of the other end just like, well. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. Yeah, I no, was bitter. I, I will admit to you, I was bitter when Poison sold 16 million records and I never got a nickel for it. That made mm. me bitter. And I was bitter about a few other things, but I'm not, I'm not, a. I don't hold at anything. You know, there's a couple people I don't like in the, in the, still in the business now, but I don't have to talk about that or them, no. you know, they're not part of my life. So. Yeah, man. So what, is this the point where you got the break? You got your, your, your time off and then started the podcast. Well, I started working. It's funny because I started making tacos for a living. I worked for Baby Loves Tacos. And the funny thing <laughs> about it is, is they're a sponsor of my podcast. Now, that's how good of friends <laughs> I am with the owner. But Zach and I, I was his first employee. And now right. he's got a very successful business. But I was the first guy. He hired me. Because he liked me that I, and he knew that I was in the music business. It had nothing to do with my skills of culinary arts. Yeah. So I worked there and he's the one that said, you should start a podcast. And I did in January, 2019, put my first show out. 
and I've been at it ever since. Crazy, man. Fuck, would you go back to doing any management or work for a label? I have people all the time that ask me to manage them, but I just have not found the right opportunity yet. And that means you, because you, it must, a lot of it's gut feel, right? Most things are gut feel. I gotta like the music. I tried working with some bands and I didn't like their music. And it's really difficult when you have to hide that, you know, and yeah. just like be like, it, it make, gives you a weird feeling. You know, because I didn't like working with bands that I didn't like their music when I was at labels. Whenever I would get handed something I didn't like, it was hard for me. I have yeah. to feel passionate about it because I love music. It's my life, you know. And if I'm not passionate about the artist or the record or whatever, mm -hmm. you can't do it. Yeah, yeah. It, come, it comes through as well. Like, if you, I, especially with, say, indie, punk, rock, metal, I say this quite a lot, and I think this is what drove things like Metal Blade and Roadrunner. It's like inauthenticity is the fucking killer. The second you can, because we can smell from a mile away when someone's not got, ev yeah. not putting everything into it. And let me add this: at a label like Metal Blade, everyone loved all the bands. Mm. We loved our bands; otherwise, they wouldn't have been there. Yep. At A and M Records, no. No, there was a bunch of pretentious fucks working at that label. People <laughs> that would just wanted to be in the music business. They didn't take the road I took, man, to get mm -hmm. there. They, like, cut out of college radio and went right to A&M. And I'm like, you didn't pay your dues, man. You didn't have to work in an office with eight people jammed in one room like I did when I was at Enigma or like Holly and I did at Roadrunner or Giant. We had we didn't even have windows in my office at Giant. It was like we they put up these plywood walls around us. And Homestead was behind the plywood, Homestead Records, you know. So those guys at AM were spoiled rotten. <laughs> and they would talk behind half the bands, you know, like this yeah, band so. sucks. Why are we working with them? They had negative things to say about just about everybody. There weren't very many bands there that would come along like you know when we put van morrison out of course nobody would say nothing bad about van the man you know but you know some of the other bands they didn't give a shit mm, mm. they just did not care it was no <laughs> there was not a lot of integrity at, at a major label you know that's the word <laughs> all right man I, I don't know what else to close out on because the podcast is like that's where we are at present well, day we're going to close out on me asking you a question about your documentary and what, right, okay. because I'm yeah. honored that I was asked to be in it. And what do you feel about how it's going for you right now? I'm rever I'm, I'm turning into the host for a minute here. No, so cool. how do you think it's going? I mean, and what have you accomplished and how do you feel about it? Oh, dude. Like, okay. Okay. So this, as an exercise, this is going to be interesting because I'm going to answer you now and then, when this thing comes out, we should like reflect on what I say now. Because Can I, I ask you when you think it's going to come out? Everyone, everyone asks that. And it, the, the answer is, I mean, I'm hoping within 18 months to two years, but it all okay. depends. It depends on the financing and it depends because there's the, the advantage of my current job. My real job is I'm a project manager. So I can sort of like at least give an arbitrary date and work backwards. Right. So there's like, at the minute there's three plans. There's the zero budget plan, there's the partial budget plan, and then there's the full budget plan. And depending on how much money this thing can raise and how close to which planet is, depends on, that depends on how it's going to come out. So it could be five years, 18 months, somewhere in between. 
Okay. Do I, you feel like you have successful content right now? I think, the, I, yes. And I feel, I feel that way for the main reason is there's a knowledge gap. There's a massive knowledge gap. No one knows fucking anything about Roadrunner, right? There's, there's Slipknot and Nickelback and there's the, the period after. And people are very aware of the, contra the, the controversies around Roadrunner. There's like certain disputes, contractual disputes with the bands. Um, they know of this guy called Monty Connor. Um, and that's kind of it. That's kind of it. Like, I remember I did the press release like last July, fucking hell, nearly a year ago. And, um, and now I, I'm, I'm not the smartest man in the world, but I don't read comments on any of the things that I do because I'm not a fucking idiot. But my, I've got a confidant who, who sort of like relays things back to me as, as, as it becomes important. And he said, one guy said, I'll watch it up until Monty Connor signs Nickelback. And I was like, all oh, right, there's definitely an education required here because this is going to be watching the whole thing because Monty didn't sign Nickelback, you know? <laughs> and so it, it's... Ah, right. Yeah, it's, a, there's a... And a lot of people think that it started out in the 90s as road racing. It's like, no, no, none of this stuff is true. So there's a lot of people that don't, don't know anything about this label, mm -hmm. which is great because that's exactly what the, the documentary aims to do. But there's also like this other thing, which I'm hoping you've clocked in on in our 18 months of knowing each other. But there's a relationship between the label and the artist which is quite mystical. And I'm hoping to, de to demystify this, this relationship. And I'm hoping to sort of like understand and help other people understand that while every great band has great music and there's a great, there's a great thing in the art, there's also infrastructure that pushes it forward. And I meant what I said earlier when I said like, there's probably like a 10, 20 bands, which are, are going to be my favorite band in the whole world, which I'll never hear because it wasn't captured by that system. Um, and I think it's the end of the story is effectively a very much a, it's a kind of a pure heart story because no one sets out to fuck anyone over when it comes to music. I think everyone wants to propagate music and make, you know, make metal or metal happen. That's the phrase I use quite often, especially in the case of say like a Roadrunner or a Metal Blade. And I think it's hopefully the end point will be really amplifying that message, right? and hopefully put it in a modern context where it's saying, you know, we're facing a, a massive saturation of music, but with the right ingredients, we can maybe give metal a real seat at the table. And, you know, hard rock and, and punk and all the other things, because there's an outlier genre, right? And we all enjoy our outlier genres, but in the current climate, there's just absolutely no fucking way it's going to penetrate into anything totally meaningful without some help. And what better way to understand how to do that as a culture than figure out how the best did it. That's ask you one idea. other question one no other problem. question what do you what is your goal as far as the length goes and is it going to be more than one part at the minute it's going to be three feature lengths three feature lengths three feature of how lengths. long about about 90 minutes each wow and they're going to be uh, like dvd or they're going to go straight to like uh if no one Netflix? funds this thing right if, <laughs> if no one funds this thing it's going to go on youtube and it's going to go on YouTube with the, the, the best quality I can possibly muster, which at the minute is yeah, like do, please don't Please don't be one of those directors that gets mad and throws it in the vault and we have to wait nah. 20 years like the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. We yeah. have to wait like all those years. Before. Don't do that, please. Release no, I, own, I own everything. So there's no, there's no like third or fourth or fifth pie who's going to get embroiled in the legalese. I own the thing. So whatever happens, it will be finished. And what, you know, and I've been at it for nearly two years now. So there's, and if I was going to get bored, I'd be bored by now. And it's not boring yet. Right. Well, 
let me publicly in front of the whole world that's listening right now thank you for involving me in the project it's just bewil- it was bewildering to me at first when i was being asked to talk about a label that i only worked for for eight months and i got fired from but if you think about it and i know you have it was an eventful eight months for that label. So, I mean, I'm glad I was there and I'm glad I experienced the grief and, 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 you know, the grief, I'm glad I experienced the grief mm-hmm. of Roadrunner Records. <laughs> it was, it's so, it's so crazy, man. Cause like when, when we started this, I say we, because you were like episode five, the whole thing was meant to be like, it's just going to be some fucking zoom calls and a fucking PowerPoint presentation, and I'm going to put it on YouTube, and that's kind of it. But now it's just got it's got picked up legs, and we had no right to bump into each other in in, in Brooklyn the way that we did, which was really cool because obviously I had you down for the for the interview. But when I was just walking down the street and I heard someone shout my name, I was like, I never thought I'd meet Steve Ricardo outside of a Mexican fucking burrito. Shop. <laughs> of course, I was at a Mexican place <laughs> eating tacos. What do you expect, man? <laughs> No, it was cool though. I mean, how did how did you feel meeting all those guys again? For context, we all went out for dinner at um, It was in really Manhattan. interesting. It was interesting because being in the in the same room with some of those guys I didn't I only knew like three of them, I think. And um it's I'm gonna go back to Nickelback for a second because I know what it's like to sign a band and all of a sudden everyone thinks you're like an idiot for signing them because I went through that with poison, you know. I mean, people didn't really not everyone likes poison, and maybe they, they dislike nickelback more. So that guy seemed like a really interesting guy, and they all did. I mean, I, I enjoyed it, and I just felt like it was weird. I had a weird feeling like, wow, I'm really an outcast with this crew. But then again, you know what? I've always felt that way being in the music business. I've always felt like an outcast. I always feel like I never really fit in anywhere. Yeah. You know? So it wasn't that bad at all. Hey, my and I don't drink is- anymore, so I couldn't pound down all the alcohol like you guys were. But, you know, <laughs> you know, it's kind of sad about it because like it was kind of like a watershed moment because again like this wasn't meant to happen i'm fucking i'm i'm fucking nobody i had we were at the table with all those dudes and um i was so tired as you found out the next morning i was so tired so jet lagged and i was so busy and so stressed and all these things i there's a lot of that meal i can't remember and it comes back as like an acid flashback but our, the, but my position on that whole thing was like i was very much a fly on the wall watching all these a and r guys like talk shop and it was really it was really fascinating the shit yeah, I, I, I did enjoy it i did enjoy it it was good seeing doug keo especially because i hadn't seen him in so long and monty is an interesting guy you know no matter what anyone says about him he's like he's been there as long as i have you know i think he started maybe one or two years after i did in the business mm-hmm. so he's been there for a long time yeah. So I respect people that have been been able to last that long. Like I don't know how those guys are still working for labels. I give them credit. Him and Gitter, I'm like, I say the same thing to Gitter. I'm like, how the hell can you still be doing this? He just loves music, man. You know, he can't stop doing it. Yeah. Can't stop doing it. It's crazy. And it's important for me to get the knowledge from these guys as to how they did it and yourself obviously before like as this next generation ushers in and tries to make the next big outcast band something big it's important to get information but yeah hopefully hopefully i'm hopefully it doesn't all get taken away from me and hopefully i don't get sued into oblivion and i'm still doing it in a few years and hopefully i'm still as enthusiastic about it um but 
Please yeah, don't get sued. I don't plan don't on get getting sued. sued. I do not plan on getting sued. You never know. Tomorrow could be the day. Well, I'm with you, man. Right till the bitter end. Thanks, man. To the happy end. I want to be, you know what call I want to get? The yeah. call like, are you coming down to New York for the premiere? And that's the day I'm going to be like, run into New York. Dude, I, I honestly, it was so good. I'm glad we got to do this because it was important that I tried to at least highlight the rest of your career. But I really wanted it to be like the morning after um, with the the um, dictaphone just on a coffee table, so we'd have like all like the Brooklyn background noise. But it was because of you, man, that it wasn't because you were in good shape that day. It but... wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't that because I had a camera die on me the day before, as you know, because you've got you got the six K treatment. Um, so I had to like navigate the uh, Manhattan subway system to get this part, and luckily I did. <laughs> um, luckily I managed to get it, and the, the rest of the interviews were like the two camera jobbies. Did I send you some footage, by the way? I think I sent you I something, didn't I? Yeah, you sent me a really short thing, but yeah, you don't yeah. have to send me a lot. I can be surprised when it comes out. Or you oh. can send me more and get my opinion. I don't care. Whatever you want to do, man. Looks, I'm with you. I'm 100%, I'm 100% behind this project, man. I really am. I can't wait to get to see it released. I can't wait to just see it fucking finished <laughs> in a good way. I like it. It's, the thing that like, the, the frustration is... Um, just trying to make sure I can commit the time and make sure that it's, it's that the plan I've got is like a stable plan. Um, but yeah, I think the tra the trap is interesting. The, the politics of it are interesting. That's the stage I'm at now, right? It's like, and that's mm. like I was saying earlier, people think I'm working with Roadrunner. I'm like, I'm not fucking working with Roadrunner. There's a lot of ex Roadrunner people that like me, but that's not, I'm not working with Warner in any capacity. But um, yeah, I'm more on that off the record because it's interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you, man, for having me. Dude, thanks, for, thanks for joining me. Um, let's, let's close it out there, but I did want to tell you something. I'll get off of that.